Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Elliot Ackerman, a regular contributor to the Suwannee Review, most recently in our fall 22 issue with four letters from Ukraine. Ackerman is also the best-selling author of the novels 2034, Red Dress in Black and White, among others, as well as the memoir Places and Names. He is both a former White House fellow and Marine and served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Bronze Star for Valor and the Purple Heart. He is, however, afraid of what? Elliot, what are you afraid of? Like, you got to be, I mean, are you afraid of small furry things? Are you afraid of mice? Like what? Um... You know, I've give written, us, give us some feeling. I've written, I've written about this once. The thing I always used to be afraid of was, uh, was getting lost. Oh, okay. Like I hate like the idea of like, you know, it's very difficult to get You're, lost in this day and age, but to like, you know, be trying to find a place and to be like lost in the street. I do not like getting lost. Okay. But, but once you, once you recognize you're lost, the valor kicks in and you're fine. And then I'm fine. That's and then good. I, and right. then I get found quickly. Okay. I feel better. I've read several of your books now. This was the book we're here to talk about today is your most recent work of nonfiction, The Fifth Act, which was as propulsive for me as places and names, as engaging and as sort of put you on the ground, I think, as your previous memoir. That's the topic of our discussion today. But before we discuss the book, I thought it would be helpful if you explain to our listeners the chronology of your military and intelligence career, because I think it helps our listeners to better understand, among other things, how 9-11 was such a defining event in your life. And I think it also explains the place of Afghanistan in your life as a soldier. But I think it gives us some context in terms of the entire arc of this book. So maybe you could talk about that for a little. Sure. Why well, I, I served as a Marine Corps officer starting in 2003, which is right when I graduated college. Then right out the gate, served in Iraq in 2004, 2005, when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit, actually. My infantry battalion was sit down to New Orleans, so I spent about a month down there. When Israel invaded Lebanon in 2006, we were sent to evacuate all the Americans out of Lebanon. Then I went to Afghanistan as a Marine Raider, which is our special operations unit. Served in Afghanistan there as an advisor to a 700-man Afghan commando battalion for most of 2008. And then after that, left the Marine Corps and went and worked as a paramilitary case officer with CIA, doing pretty you know similar special operations type work, advising Afghan counterterrorism units until 2011. And at that point, I'd, I'd been fighting in the wars for the better part of eight years and just, you know, decided that uh, it's time to move on and do something else. Can you just talk a little, though, about that paramilitary role over against your role in the military, per se, what the distinctions were? Because, I mean, I think that given some of the events and even losses you talk about in the Fifth Act, they just seem uniquely different and, and present a different almost career arc for you as in something you would then decide to leave. So I think something that might not be apparent to those who haven't experienced the wars and fight there was particularly those who served in special operations. You know, we were advisors to Afghans. So like my, yes, I have American war buddies, but I also have all these war buddies who aren't Americans, who were Afghans. So when I was, you know, at the agency, for instance, you know, I was in advising a unit of about 400 Afghans and there were five Americans. So all your, pretty much your daily interactions are not with Americans. You know, your partners, the people you're, you're fighting alongside are not Americans, but you develop the same types of bonds and deep relationships that fighting men have always developed. And you do all the same things. You know, you fight alongside one another, you bleed alongside one another. But then the war ends, and when I came home in 2011, you know, these weren't guys I could, like, go get 50-cent beers with at the local VFW and talk about old times. We were sort of oftentimes forced apart. In, in recent years, even before the end of Afghanistan, many of them were able to start migrating to the U.S., but their families were all back in Afghanistan. So when the collapse happened, the, the shockwave that went out in that community, meaning Afghans who'd resettled to the United States— and also among veterans, it was huge. 
but it was this sort of cataclysmic event that was happening in a very narrow subsection of American society. We're talking about the fifth act here, which which is to me a very complex book in terms of its structure, the way in which it moves around through certain time periods. But I'd argue that it's, you know, obviously its central event is the collapse of Afghanistan, Kabul, and the the essentially the victory of the Taliban and the, and the absolutely cataclysmic withdrawal from Afghanistan that we witnessed. But what I'm wondering, given your response just now, is was there any sort of pipeline in operation with some of the people that you were working with for Afghans who were emigrating to the U.S.? I mean, obviously, it's a different situation because they thought they were fighting a war for the homeland that they would win. Was there any infrastructure, I'm wondering, before the withdrawal from Afghanistan for getting people who weren't in any kind of secure situation out? Well, there was. The problem is it was a deeply flawed infrastructure and it continues to be a deeply flawed infrastructure. So the way if you were an Afghan who worked with the Americans, you know, or an Iraqi, actually, this was, you know, these were systems that were put in place after 9-11 was, this, was something called the Special Immigrant Visa Program. The average wait time, or the, sorry, the average processing time for a special immigrant visa is 700 days. So you have to wait about two years for this thing to get processed. So as sort of the noose is tightening in Afghanistan and people need to get out, there was no effective means for them to get out. So, and then after the announcement was made in April of 2021 that we were going to withdraw, there were a whole host of lawmakers, you know, members of Congress bipartisan, uh, over two dozen, who are all sending letters to the Biden administration saying, you have to do something about this. This is going to be a disaster. We cannot get our people out. Uh, so they sent two separate letters to the White House and received no response on either. So there was a chorus of voices saying, this is going to be bad. There needs to be some method of getting our allies out. And they were, you know, they were floating alternatives. Like, you know, you mentioned Vietnam. In Vietnam, we, we did a mass evacuation to Guam. And we sorted out people in Guam, and actually a signatory to that letter was the uh, representative from Guam, um, the delegate to Congress, you know, who supported that program. And that was also done with the Kurds. But, you know, when you look at what happened in August, there was, I think, a bet that the administration made, and it was that there was going to be a decent interval. There would be some interval of time from when the last U.S. service member left Afghanistan to when that collapse occurred. And it could have been Look, if you look at Vietnam, we left in 1972. Vietnam collapses in 1975. It was three years. If you look after the Soviets left, it was four years. And, you know, it could have been six months, wouldn't have mattered. But they were betting that there was going to be a decent interval. When there was no decent interval and the collapse happened before the last U.S. service member had left, at that point, all bets were off. And there had been no planning for that type of scenario. And that's the, the result was the complete chaos that we saw in the summer of 2021. I feel like I'm almost doing a, a bad job here diving into this in Medias Race. So let's back up a little. Describe this book for listeners. Describe what the fifth act is about to you. And maybe even talk a little bit about the structure you arrived at. I ask simply because I think one of the things that's remarkable about the book is these events are very near to us, right? I mean, we just witnessed this collapse, essentially. So the book's written at speed. But then also clearly there's a sense that some of these themes that you discuss in the, in the book have been percolating and with you for quite some time. So describe for somebody, not so much in flapjacket copy, but tell our listeners a little bit about what the fifth act's about. Yeah, well, maybe I'll, I mean, I'll start by talking a little bit about how the book got written because it wasn't a book that I... I planned on writing. So in kind of early August of 2021, once it, it seemed obvious that the Taliban were going to win this war, although we didn't yet know how, what that ending was going to look like, my publisher and I agreed that I was going to just write kind of a quick, the plan was to do a quick paperback original, just writing about Afghanistan to kind of bring people up to speed who hadn't been paying attention to the war, because it is something I've written about for quite some time. We agreed that I would do that. And then, uh, it was the end of summer, so everyone sort of was going on their going on their last two weeks of August holidays, and that's when the collapse happened. Actually, a friend of mine who uh, has a pretty popular Substack reached out to me 
And she said, hey, listen, I'm gathering three or four people to just kind of give us, give me some quick takes on what's going on in Afghanistan. And, you know, could you give me like 500 words? And frankly, I, I really didn't want to write about it at the time. Uh, I was like, well, you know, what do you want me to write about? She's like, well, people haven't been paying attention to this, what's been going on the last 20 years. So maybe, maybe you could just summarize what's gone on in Afghanistan the last 20 years in like 500 words. <laughs> I sort of like, I'm like, come on, that's like impossible. And then what she said to me, which, which really stuck when she said, you know, Elliot, people just are watching and they don't necessarily understand what's going on, but they, they, they certainly understand that it's a tragedy. And it was her use of the word tragedy that kind of, at least for this little piece, gave me the structure. And I was like, well, you know, oftentimes tragedies are told in, in five acts from you know, Shakespeare back to the ancients. So the, the 500 words I gave her were the first act was Bush. Then you had Obama, Trump, Biden. And the fifth act becomes the Taliban and what's next in Afghanistan. And that's to me, at least politically, kind of put up a framework for you, because how do you summarize 20 years of war? Right. So then uh, my wife and I went off. We took our summer holiday, which I sort of the book toggles between that. So I wanted the reader to have that sort of disassociative nature of, you know, a life that's being lived outside of war. And you're toggling back to one that was lived in the war. These evacuations started. You know, people needed to get out. And you really saw with this kind of crowdsource, what people call the digital Dunkirk, a crowdsourced evacuation of people out of the airport. I was involved in five distinct evacuations that some were successful, some were unsuccessful. So I wanted to also write about those five sort of set piece evacuations. And throughout that evacuation effort, this is kind of the last part of the book, why is everyone doing this? You know, why are all these people, whether they're Afghans living in the United States now, veterans, journalists, activists, working, you know, day in, day out all over all these weeks, you know, to help, frankly, Many people who, you know, they didn't know, like most of the people I was involved, these were people I had personal relationships with. And I think it was really because everyone was trying to live up to this ideal of like, we leave no one behind. And that is an ideal that is in the military, very central to the U.S. military's ethos. It's something that gets pounded into your head from the first day. But it's really an ideal that is as old as war. I mean, if you go all the way back to, you know, to the Iliad, mm -hmm. when Achilles kills Hector in front of the gates of Troy and he drags his body back to his camp. And, you know, one of the last scenes in the Iliad, King Priam coming back to beg Achilles for the body of his son. Why? Because we don't leave anybody behind. And so I think everyone was working in that spirit to include me, but also for me, it was dredging up a lot of memories from Afghanistan. And in the book, I write about one case in particular where, you know, I've, I've long questioned whether or not I lived up to that ideal. In 2008, in an ambush, I was involved in one of my, one of my teammates was killed uh, and we struggled to get his body out. So those are sort of the three parts of the book. There's a political strand kind of talking about the war throughout these presidencies, those five acts. There's these five set pieces of people getting evacuated from Kabul. You know, and there's just that this theme that kind of energizes it all, which is like, what does it mean to leave no one behind? Because at the end of the day, as we were doing this work, we all knew a lot of people were going to get left behind. Everybody wasn't going to get out. And that kind of, I think, lent our efforts. You, know, you, you knew you were going to get some people out, but ultimately knew this effort was, was doomed. That brings me to my next question, which is, can you leave war behind? Or put another way, can you ever fully re-enter civilian life? I was thinking about two quotes regarding this. The first is actually from Places and Names, which goes, um, it's the same it many of us need to be close to. Not necessarily a cause or a specific battle, but an experience so large that you shrink to insignificance in its presence. And that's how you get lost in it. The second quote was actually from the correspondence, the correspondences you just wrote for the Swanee Review. When you wrote about Ukraine, and I'll paraphrase this, but you basically said, and it's, it's sort of one of the ironies of endless war in a flat world, which is in 24 hours, you can get to the front line of any war right now. Yeah, right? pretty much. As long as I've known you, I've always wondered about this, which is, which is the reentry question, 
which is the which is the possibility of leaving more behind. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that. Yeah, I think it's a very complicated question. So because like, you know, people have sometimes asked me like, Elliot, you know, how do you think the wars changed you? And I've like never known how to answer that question because the wars didn't change me, right? The wars made me. It's an experience that's so braided into who I am that I I can't answer. It's like, how did your how did your mother change you? How did your brother change you? From your, you know, like these aren't the people who change you, they're the people who made you. And you can't untangle that braid. So if I'm asked, can you ever return back from war? It's like, well, what am I necessarily returning to? So that's something, you know, because this is so fundamental to who I am. I don't know who I would be, you know, if I hadn't had those experiences. But at the same time, too. I've had people throughout my life, well-meaning people say things to me like, you know, with particularly Iraq and Afghanistan, like, I can't imagine what you went through over there. And my response is always be like, sure you can, you know, try, like try, like, you know, I'm sure you've experienced loss. I'm sure you've been afraid before, you know, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you could probably get pretty close to the approximation of what my experience was there if, if you wanted to. And the reason I've sort of rejected that idea of someone saying like, well, I can't imagine what that was like is because, well, if you can't imagine that experience and how it could affect someone, it means that maybe in some ways I or, you know, any other person who's experienced war has become so changed by that experience that they're unrecognizable from the person they were before. So like if you can't, you know, imagine what I went through, it means I've been changed in some way that's maybe utterly unrecognizable from the person that I was before I ever left. And if that's the case, it means I can never go back to being the person I was before I left, which means in some respects, I never get to come home. Right. On the one hand, I recognize that these experiences are very much braided within me and they are fundamentally a part of who I am. But on the other hand, emotionally, I don't want to believe that I have been so fundamentally altered in a way that's unrecognizable to my countrymen that uh, I don't get a return to reintegrating, coming home, just kind of coming back into civilian life. So I've always sort of, you know, I've always wrestled with that, you know, and then there's what war is, you know, kind of this, what you're talking about, this idea. That, of you that, can, that's what I'm kind of getting to, because I think that, have you ever read, um, good Lord, I'm forgetting the name of the author now, but he wrote this great little book years ago called The Correspondences, J.D. Daniels. Mm-mm. I sort of mean I sort of mean war as one of those rare, not singular, or maybe singular, but extremely rare kind of almost like maximal experiences, which always function as a backdrop against civilian life. I'm pushing against this a little because to me, in some ways, one of the most like effective parts of the book, a, a part of the book that really pulled at my heartstrings was not so much just the loss of certain comrades. And we'll talk about this further down in the conversation, but was the kind of dislocation that happens to you while you're on this trip in Italy with your family, right? It's very, it's radical. I mean, like you're, you are not there in some ways with your family. The, the dislocatedness of war, the belonging to a place where you have had these sorts of experiences, which I don't know if civilian life offers up as much. I mean, listen, war makes you forever, it in some ways makes you forever an expatriate because you know you are from a place that you probably are never going to get back to or will always maybe be kind of yearning to get back to. So and obviously that, you know, that place is who you were in that moment with that group of people where you had this, you know, pretty profound experience, you know, I'm, so I'm, you know, for me, I'll, there's a little part of me that will always be an expatriate of Fallujah in 2004 when I was a 24 year old rifle platoon commander. And I know the group of, you know, 40 some Marines who are in that platoon and we're all, we're all from that place. You know, we all live our lives where we are right now, but we're, you know, that we're so anchored by that experience in that place that, you know, we'll never kind of get back to it. So I think if you, you know, what does it mean to be an expatriate? If you're an expatriate, it means you are living away from the place that defines you. I've never heard it put that way. I think that's beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. and I think beautiful in the sense that it names that experience, I think, in such a way that I'm not going to be so presumptuous to say speaks more to the truth than some of the Hollywood glorified versions, but the idea of war imposing a kind of expatriate status on people is sounds right 
Yeah, it does. I mean, but the, and but you know, I think one of the things that that fascinates me about war is that it's it's such an old narrative. Like we've been doing this forever. It's very difficult to say something totally new and unique about war, but people are always saying, I think, the same things in new and unique ways. I mean, like this idea, you know, the idea of being an expatriate. Like if you again, if you go back to Homer in the Odyssey. I mean, you know, people know, that I'm sure you know the story of when Homer sails by or when uh, Odysseus sails by the island of the sirens oh, yeah. and the sirens are singing their song. And I remember when I first heard that story, I was like, oh, well, they must, you know, they, they're, they're singing the song, trying to seduce him onto their island. And Odysseus tells his men to lash him to the mast. They put wax in their ears, but he wants to hear the siren song. And I always assumed, oh, well, they must be like, you know, singing to him of, you know, carnal temptations and like, come on on the island, Odysseus. And they're not. What they're singing to him about is war and man's glory in war. And that is how they're trying to seduce him onto the island. You know, come to us and we're not going to like pleasure you. We're going to let you continue to fight in the war and continue to experience that type of glory. And there are a lot of people who are continually seduced that way. Some people make it home, you know, more thoroughly than others. And I've certainly, you know, had that experience with, you know, friends of mine. There's some of my friends who are more home than others. Interesting. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Another one of the questions that occurred to me, and I think it cuts right to the center of the book, is this. What is the soldier's obligation in a quagmire? Or a better way to maybe phrase the question is, what's the effect of a lack of clear objective on the individual soldier? This this seems to me, I may be off here, and I don't want to fret the idea of chain of command on any level, although I think later on in the book, as the withdrawal really becomes catastrophic, there's the one immolation you describe of, I think it's Commander Sullins, if I'm uh, Stu Scheller. Stu Scheller, sorry. Yeah. We'll get to this in depth a little more as I, as I kind of hit you with some of these sort of dualities I want to discuss later. But it seems to me that one of the aspects of Forever War that's been so unique is the lack of an overarching objective. And I'm just curious how you feel like that impacted you as you fought and participated, impacted your friends, you have that really moving moment where you in, early on, where you're reapproaching your friend Jack, I believe, mm-hmm. for help, where you basically talk about how everyone has to sort of leave the war on their own schedule and in a way on their own terms. It's related to that. Am I? Does the question strike a chord with you? What yeah. Else? Well, I think it's wars that go on as long as these wars do, unless you know, unless you've served from nine eleven till August of twenty twenty one. Anyone who left at a certain point had to, as I put in the book, declare their own separate peace yes. and say, the war is done for me. You know, you guys might be going on the next deployment. I am not. I am leaving. I'm going to go do something else. And that's a fraught proposition because the people that you're serving with, at least in my case, were some of my very best friends. And they are all going to leave to continue to do the work that we have always done together. And it's dangerous work. And, you know, in my case, I have after I left, I had good friends who returned to the wars, you know, and were killed. And I, and I know I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there. I mean, I might not necessarily have been there, but I knew that I had left, I was living my civilian life and they were not killed um, in the war. And that's obviously a fraught proposition, but like, if you're declaring a separate peace, everyone sort of has to make their own peace treaty within themselves. And some of those have proved more enduring than others. And what happens in August of 2021 I mean, it happens with me and I write about it, but I saw it happening with many people in the wider veterans community is the way the war ends afflicts this sort of moral injury on everyone. I mean, you, you know, 
community of veterans and Afghans living in the United States and, you know, and other people who are tied to Afghanistan, if they're activists or journalists, but like are left to clean this up. I mean, I don't know. I don't know it was a complete disaster. If there had been some State Department phone number or email address where anyone felt they could send a person who in aid in good conscience and say, here's the number you call. Here's the email address you send an email to. They will contact you and tell you what you need to do so you and your family can be safe. You know, we would have just been sending people that email address, but it, that email address didn't exist. In some ways, the government was sort of actively stymieing this. I have one case, there was, you know, there were emails and points of contact that were being circulated. And when you would reach out to that send that email, you get an automatic response telling you to contact another email that would then give you a different automatic response to the same email that you had just used, if you, if you follow me. Oh, so, I follow, I follow you. so we were, you know, so the, the politics of this, I think, well, to speak for me, were infuriating and felt like this very, very deep betrayal where not only have you, has your life been defined by a 20-year war that the longer it went on, the less and less society writ large cared about it. Uh, and didn't necessarily want to figure out a way to end it. But when they finally decide to end it, it's ended in such a haphazard and sloppy manner that the cleanup is left to to citizens who are who have you know tried to make peace in their own lives, but are now getting yanked out of that peace because they have no choice but to try to help clean this mess up. And when I say no choice, I mean if you're of a certain demographic, meaning you served in Afghanistan or worked there in whatever capacity, you're going to know people from Afghanistan and you're going to, your phone is going to be blowing up with people, you know, and other people who you might not know, but who have gotten your number and in touch with you asking for help. And at a certain point, I mean, just that, you know, it's psychically challenging when someone's sending you photographs of their family saying, please, please help me. The Taliban are coming door to door. They're looking for me. And if you don't help me, I'm going to be, if someone doesn't help me, I'm going to get killed. Just turn your phone off. I mean, gosh, I was, I was about to say, psychically challenging is a muted way to put it. Not, not, that, not that you're being insensitive. I saw that remarkable short film on the Times. Yeah. Which also where one of the veterans was also using the language, the, the phrase moral injury. I thought it really powerfully evoked how this, this very demographic finds themselves desperately, obsessively trying to square their, their human contact, their relationships with real people. I don't think society writ large understands this, but like, it's not like these are a bunch of people who just can't get over the war. It's like the war won't leave them alone. The war is, the war is sending them dozens of text messages every day. I mean, literally, it's still so, you know, it's, it's, it's to tell someone, hey, maybe it's time for you to get over the war, move on. Like the war is sending you text messages. Can I ask you a question from, this, this comes from the Department of Cognitive Dissonance, mm -hmm. but it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to almost seem like some kind of like stealth indictment, but it doesn't mean it's not meant that way. Like, was it, was it strange at best for you to watch the American public galvanizing with aid around Ukraine? when you look at this against like what just happened for you i mean was it was was there i would have to think that that was hard. yes and it's not that yeah it's not that it's like it's it's hard because i think we should be galvanizing around ukraine and i think no i, did, I mean yeah. of course like, yeah, right sure. now of course the fact that in august of 2021 i would argue you saw probably the darkest moment in the nato alliance's history a complete and total unconditional defeat to the Taliban, who are basically 40 to 50,000 fighters after this war, and uh, us taking terms from the Taliban at Kabul airfield and leaving with our tail tucked between our legs. And that within six months of NATO's darkest hour, you would then have in February of 2022, what I would argue is probably its brightest, which is the way that the alliance overperforms when Russia invades Ukraine and everybody galvanizes around this cause, you know, was just I mean, not even emotionally, but just sort of intellectually, it was remarkable to see that so quickly. Um, and I think you, know, you can definitely drop a plumb line from what happened in Afghanistan in August to Putin's decision to invade Ukraine in February 2022, because, of course, Putin is weighing what is the NATO response going to be? Uh, and he looks in Afghanistan, and he says, well, it's going to be a pretty tepid or weak response if this is the best they can do in Kabul. But, you know, he got a much stronger response. So just watching that as someone who watches politics was 
was dizzying, but I think, you know, but then emotionally as well. Yes. I mean, what actually what was more psychically disorienting for me was when suddenly in July and then really in August of 2021, people started paying attention to Afghanistan for a brief window. Right. Because it's like no one had no one had cared about this. Um, I mentioned, you know, I mentioned in the in the book, Rasmussen put a poll in the field before the 2018 midterm elections where right. they asked voters what they care about, what issues. And they had like Afghanistan in there. And when Americans were asked whether or not they care, you know, how do they prioritize Afghanistan? I think it was 44% of Americans. It wasn't they didn't care about the war. Like they actually, they didn't know if it was still going on. They just had no idea. Um, and that shows how far it had receded from most people's consciousness. So amidst the horrifically discombobulated and I think it's fair to say incompetent withdrawal from Afghanistan, the tragic withdrawal from Afghanistan, one of the soldiers you served with, Momez, becomes a central figure in the book. I thought you might read a scene about him that takes place in, is it Shuan? Shuan. Shuan, in Afghanistan's Farwa province in 2008, and then share what he comes to represent in the book. So this is basically, I was serving in 2008 as a team leader of a Marine, team of Marine Raiders, and... Uh, and we were advisors to these Afghan commandos. And one of our sister teams had been uh, in a like two-day gunfight to the southwest of us. And we had been called down to reinforce them. We went down to reinforce them. And sort of no one was there. By the time we showed up, the Taliban had bugged out. And so we turned around and we're basically driving many hours back to our fire base. And as we're driving back, the, the same Taliban that had been fighting our sister team had basically gotten behind us and they ambushed us. And this is sort of the... This passage talks about that convoy leading up to the ambush. The heat, the whine of the engine, the lulling rhythm of the Humvee. I could feel myself nodding off as we approached Shawan. I reached into my cargo pocket and took out a piece of gum, hoping it might wake me up. A little under an hour later, when we got to the outskirts of Shawan, I was onto my third piece. The town which sat low and indistinct on the horizon, quickly took shape as we drew closer. A market bracketed the main road. Brightly painted aluminum doors fronted the shuttered stalls. Hastily parked cars littered either side of the road. As it had when we'd passed through before, an atmosphere of abandonment lingered about the town, except now it wasn't the middle of the night, but rather the middle of the day. From inside the town, a tanker truck shot out onto the road. It hurtled toward us. Lange's steps orbited in my direction, as up in the turret, he trained the barrel of his automatic grenade launcher onto the tanker. Then the tanker stopped. Slowly, it began to make a three-point turn, blocking our way and causing our convoy to bunch together. Our lead vehicle, a Ford Ranger pickup, driven by the Afghan commandos, pulled beside the tanker. The commandos yelled at the driver, gesticulating wildly, waving him off the road. They leveled their machine gun at the cab. The driver, however, remained indifferent. I could see him through his windshield, calmly working the gear shift. His gaze was cold, expressionless. He wouldn't be hurried. Something about him made me pick up the radio. Everyone keep your eyes open. A shudder went to the roots of my hair. I thought to turn us around, but we were committed. Our first few vehicles, including mine, had already penetrated the outskirts of town. The idea of reversing the entire convoy seemed even riskier. We were already in range of whatever threat existed inside Shawan. Another few seconds passed. The tanker finished its turn and sped into town driving unreasonably fast, as if wanting to place as much distance as possible between itself and us. We got underway again, the front of the convoy starting out slowly, allowing the back to catch up. The commandos in front of us, who sat anywhere between four to six in the bed of their pickups, appeared especially vigilant. They kept their profiles low as we entered the town, crouching behind their rifles. Everyone could feel it. In those seconds, we knew the shuttered storefronts, the deserted streets, the glimpse 
of a woman grabbing a child off the street. It was so obvious as to be cliché, as foretold as any high noon scene in a spaghetti western, as apparent in life as it would have been on the screen when, say, the tumbleweed blows through town, when the gunfighter cocks both his pistols and walks out in the street. You know that it's coming. The first rocket-propelled grenade went wide. Fired from the north side of the street, it sailed overhead. I reached for my radio, and Lange swung left in the turret, stepping on my arm. Contact left, RPG, I shot into the handset. Then, doing my best to sound calm and level, I added, Near ambush. All vehicles pushed through the kill zone. Above my head, Lange had gone to work, jackhammering out three to five round bursts from the automatic grenade launcher. Each 40-millimeter round is the size of an egg, and the recoil caused our Humvee to lurch to the right. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Redbone tugging the steering wheel left while he floored the accelerator. Tactically speaking, there's only one rule when caught in an ambush. Get out of the kill zone. In Shawan, the Taliban had turned the length of this road into a kill zone. Muzzle flashes winked from the windows. Light and medium machine guns knotted the air, swirling up whippets of dust with their recoil. An RPG slammed into the bed of the Ford Ranger in front of us. It failed to detonate but still tore off the tailgate and knocked one commando unconscious. The RPG gunner, a teenager with a wispy beard clad in all black except for a dirty pair of white running shoes, vanished in a pink mist. I patted Lange encouragingly on the leg while he cursed and manhandled his turret to his next target, a building up ahead. He chomped a bite out of its side with another burst of grenades. Redbone, ever the multitasker, drove with his left hand while balancing the barrel of his shotgun on the ledge of his window and firing it with his right. Our Humvee began to swerve side to side after the Taliban shot out two of our tires. Then everything quieted down. The open desert presented itself to our front. We pulled onto the shoulder of the road. Behind us, thick, acrid columns of black smoke towered upward like monuments. A first and then a second of the commando vehicles sped out of the kill zone. The Afghans perched in the beds of these trucks remained rigid and unmoving in their firing positions, all twitchy looks with eyes throttled wide open. Next should have been a pair of vehicles to include Willie's, but behind was only the vacant road. Then, Sputtering up through the hazy distance came one Humvee towing another. This was the last of our team, but not the last of the convoy. Remaining in Shawan were about half of the commandos, all of Super Dave's Special Forces Detachment, as well as our headquarters. Willie pulled up beside us. He stepped stiffly out of his truck, which had eaten an RPG, while the Marines inside now dipped into their first aid kits to plug the little holes from which they bled. I stood outside my Humvee, holding a radio handset to my ear as I passed along a situation report to our higher headquarters at Bagram Air Base. Willie rinsed out his eyes and mouth with a bottle of water as he approached, still choking a bit on the smoke he'd inhaled in the ambush. I told him that I needed a head count. I'm working on it, he said, hacking between sips of water. He then pointed to the dashboard where I'd left my pack of gum. Can I have a piece? I handed Willie the pack. I realized that I needed a piece too. In the ambush, I had swallowed my gum. From the outskirts of Shawan, the Taliban continued taking pot shots at us. We worked with the urgency of a pit crew, changing shot-out tires on a vehicle while turret gunners like Lange returned fire into the town. In ones and twos, the remainder of our convoy passed through the kill zone, limping towards safety. Willie now had a head count. We had all but two vehicles. That's when we spotted a last Humvee staggering up the road. Piled on its roof in a hood and clinging to it like a life raft were the remaining members of our convoy. Super Dave had already arrived when this last Humvee rolled in. He had been helping Willie with the headcount. This was the 19th vehicle out of 20. There was some confusion as to what had happened to the 20th. While Dave and Willie tried to figure it out, if this was everyone, Tubes hopped off the hood. 
Flames had singed the corners of his mustache, and his eyebrows had charred his sleeves up to the elbows. The skin beneath was dazzled with burns and hairless. It shined like polished stone. He interrupted everyone's counting. We're missing one, he said. Momaz is still back there. He's dead. Momaz becomes a central figure for you in the book, or this extremely complex Dutch town. And I was wondering if you could talk about who Momaz comes to represent for you in the book and maybe what it means to leave somebody behind or miscalculate and struggle well, to, to bring someone back. Yeah, you know, I mean, so basically what happened was, you know, the position we were in at that moment was we were completely shot up. So every single one of our vehicles was towing another vehicle that suffered too. And we had a bunch of our own wounded that we needed to take care of. But there's this question, Momaz is dead. His body is back there and someone's got to get Momaz's body out. So, and he's our guy, but he's dead. And, you know, we knew Momaz. And on the one hand, everyone knew like, listen, Momaz wouldn't want any of us to get hurt really badly or killed trying to get his body out. So, you, yes, you know, I think everyone kind of knew that. But on the flip side, it's like, it's going to matter to his family that he gets recovered. You know, he's not going to, you know, from, you know, how you don't leave him behind. You got to get him out. Like we all, you know, we know the code. So what do you do? And that was a very fraught choice. I mean, you know, I write about ultimately what wound up happening was we were ordered to go back and get him. That led to a disagreement with some of our higher commanders because my assessment was basically if we go back in there, someone, someone's either going to get hurt really bad or killed yeah. and maybe several people. And what wound up happening was one of our sister teams was able to kind of refit, go out that, go up that night and they were able to get his body out. But, you know, I always had this question of, you know, what if we'd been able to do it? What if we'd been able to blaze in there in those two vehicles and get him out? Like that would have felt right. That would have been really right. And, I'll, you know, and you'll never know, you know, you just, you just never know. So I had always had that question. And then when everything started happening in Afghanistan, that question kept, that kept coming to the surface for me in a way it hadn't in a long time. And so I wanted to write about it in the book because I know for many people, we all carry those questions. I guess we just call them questions we call or regrets for, mm -hmm. I call it, to give it another, we all have regrets. And sometimes things happen to us that cause those regrets to resurface painfully into our lives. And I think for, for many people, they might have a similar moment that they carry with them the way that I've carried that moment with 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 Momaz. Yeah, okay, I mean, years. it's because it's one of the it's one of the. I mean, I'll go so far as to call it almost a kind of like insane in asymmetry, right? Because all of this force and effort ends up being brought to bear on getting, on recovering, this one person. You know what I mean? Right. Why is that anecdote in a book that's about the end of the Afghan war? It's in there because you know when you know you talk about things like moral injury yeah. and it's an abstraction i mean like you know it sounds horrible what does that really mean and i'll tell you what it means it means like you'll have a person like me who has had some things they regret that were painful that they've managed to move on from and then this horrible thing will happen and it will all get dredged up to the surface again so for me it was it was momez and i hope that if there's a an Afghan war veteran who reads that book and they have their own Momez that they'll feel like, yeah, okay, that what Elliot went through, that's something that I've gone through with my friend or if someone who eh, those experiences are foreign to, to them when they hear moral injury. Now, maybe they'll be like, oh, there are probably a whole bunch of people who've got their own sort of Momez and that when society acts in these ways or shows its just ambivalence that it dredges these things up in people in there and it can be a huge setback. And I think what happened, at least in, you know, in the, particularly in the veterans community, uh, was a huge setback in the, in August of 2021. I, I just thought, I guess what I'm saying is I thought it was this, like, it was this very powerful moment because when it's the sister company, right. That comes in and brings him out. Yeah. The circle is sort of squared in this way. And there is a sense of closure that event the, the momez in this in this way stands as a counterpoint to this like still ongoing horror show which is the the botched withdrawal the the violence that is probably still going on now as we as we speak in some ways and so it's it's it to me is one of the more 
tragic counterpoints in the book because again, like so much effort, manpower goes into acting on this ethos over against the collapse, which is just so, it's just too, it's, it's like too mind boggling. I wanted to run through some quick dualities here because I think that some of the things that your book outlines point to the future and, and help us to really understand the present in ways that, uh, that in ways that for me, the only comparable book I can think of is uh, The Looming Tower, where it gives us a certain kind of like language. It's Lawrence Wright, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it really reframed the way I saw certain things. So I'll throw out these dualities and I'll just get you to talk a little. I have a long list, but I'll, for time purposes, I'll go, I'll be shorter. We can do, we can do speed dualities. Speed dualities, but, but you ready? Here we go. The military industrial complex versus the political industrial complex. Right. So, you know, we all know Eisenhower's military industrial complex in which the defense sector becomes so large, you wind up with a situation where the tail fee is sort of wagging the dog. We're forced to fight wars because we have a defense animal that we need to feed. Ultimately, leads to sort of a form of mutually assured destruction. There's a political, there's a political industrial complex that exists in America. I mean, it's everything from our media, the way we consume news, to the campaigns, our campaigns have gotten, political campaigns, presidential campaigns have gotten exponentially more expensive. If you look at the- uh, It was a Clinton campaign, right? Was it like $60 million was spent or Yeah, something? yeah. It wasn't a Clinton. It was um, Carter Reagan. Carter Reagan. Is $175 million all in both campaigns when adjusted for inflation. And only, and only one debate, I might add. But right. go ahead. And, and, four and days before the election. Days, and now I think- the, I think 2020 was on track to be about 18 billion. <laughs> I mean, and you know, so that it's it's just it's this it's this massive industry that's that's blown up around this, and it and it feeds on itself. So uh, and it incites us to to anger, to rage. You need the conflict. You need the binary. You know, red versus blue. Yes. And it's much the same way you in the Cold War, you needed that binary of us versus the Soviets. So when we recognize that perhaps. The political discourse in this country might be driven by a profit motive. I mean, that's not, not the most you think unique thing to say, but like when you when you look at what someone's telling you to believe or what someone's who someone's telling you to hate, and you take a minute and say, "Is there a profit motive behind this?" It can oftentimes reframe some of the debates. In this no, country. I, I I loved it. Here's one that's near and dear to my heart: the conscripted military versus the volunteer military. Every war that the United States has fought from the revolution to the present day has needed a construct to sustain it. And that's in two terms, blood and treasure. Who's going to fight the war? How are we going to pay for it? So for instance, the Civil War, the first ever draft in this country was during the U.S. Civil War, as was the first ever income tax in this country to fund the U.S. Civil War. You know, you go forward like the Second World War, right? The construct of the Second World War was the national mobilization and war bond drives. That's how we funded it. The Vietnam War is characterized by a very unpopular draft that ultimately leads to an anti-war movement that finishes the war. After September 11th happens, we have to find out a construct for these forever wars. And the way the construct we build is one where the treasure comes out of our deficit. So there was never a war tax and hasn't been one. And if you look at our national deficit today, about uh, seven trillion of it is the war on terror. And the last every year we passed a balanced budget was actually 2001. And the blood comes from our all volunteer military. So there isn't a draft. And the result is that is that is that you have an American population that is basically anesthetized to the cost of war, unless they're serving themselves or have a loved one who is. They don't know anyone and they don't have to pay for it. And or an American public that doesn't know there's a war going on. Or doesn't even know that's going on. And it's not that, you know, it's not that we're not a good people or a generous people. It's just there has been a construct put in place so we don't have to feel it. And war, and that's why you wind up with a 20-year war. So I think the question going forward is, as a, as a society, is that the healthiest way for us to fight wars? Does it put us in a position of moral hazard? And does it? Well, it has created, I would argue, a very dangerous civil-military divide in this country. I'll give you one statistic that I just heard the other day. 76% of soldiers enlisting in the U.S. Army today have an immediate family member who also served. And that is, to me, a frightening statistic because it shows 
how narrow and how much the U.S. military is becoming a and it's it's enculturated. It's like it's like it's like baked into certain. Well, it's, a certain it's, demographic. Right. Well, it's becoming it's just becoming a it's becoming a subculture in America right. and in a democracy that's very dangerous yeah, if yeah. you just have this one cast that's a warrior cast. I have so many of these others to ask you, but I'm going to ask you one last question, and to wrap up here, which is this: it's a personal question. There's this lovely scene in which you take your two boys to gladiator school in Italy, and it's shot through with all sorts of ironies. Maybe the most powerful of which are that. Of the things that distinguish man from animals, perhaps the two most salient are the use of language and the act of making war. So here goes. In the world your sons are about to inherit, the geopolitical world, the non-conscripted deficit-spending world of forever wars, would you want them to serve in the military? Um, I want them and any of my children. I have a daughter, too to follow whatever their passion is. And if that gives them meaning, then I would absolutely support them serving. And um, I would want it to come from them, not from me. And if you come to my house, you'll see like my military stuff isn't all up on the walls and it's not everywhere. And it's not because I'm not proud of it. I am very proud of it, but I don't want to create a space where they feel the pressure of that. So I want them to make the decisions that are best for them. And if that includes serving in the US military, I would absolutely support it. But I would I would tell you that when I ever imagine that moment, you know, standing there watching one of them, you know, march across a parade deck as a newly minted whatever, it would certainly be an incredibly conflicted moment for me. Right. In which on the one hand, I can imagine myself feeling enormous pride and that coupled with enormous tear uh, yes. for, you know, what the world could deliver them. Elliot, I wanted to end by uh, saying, first of all, thank you for all of your contributions to Swanee Review. You've been one of our regular contributors over the last several years, and I greatly appreciate it. And also, I just recommend that everyone run out and get the fifth act because it is one of those books that is a kind of primer on a war that's been not front and center and uh, one that I think casts a, a very long shadow on our future. It's a brave book and uh, I appreciate you being here. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesawanireview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is The Sewanee Review, new since 1892.